0: Point family, and hey, if you've been around for the next few uh, last few weeks, help me finish this sentence. Um, if you got your Bibles, head over to Romans chapter. I'm impressed, that's great. Head over there right now. And hey, while you're turning there, um, there's a group of people in our church at all of our campuses um, that I I really just want to honor right now, uh, because they did something absolutely amazing this week. Um, This week, we had Kids Quest at all of our campuses. That's the artist formerly known as VBS, and it was awesome. You're going to hear more about that later uh, in the service. Really, really cool what God did this week in uh, kind of the upcoming generation at Lake Point. But who I really wanna honor is will you do this right now, will you please stand at all of our campuses, if you were one of the 1,200 volunteers who made an investment in our kids, will you please stand right now, go ahead and do it, go ahead and do it, go ahead and do it, do it right now. I see that hand, that's right, all over the place, all our campuses, we see you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And hey, um, Lake Point family, what you need to understand is a lot of these people, like they took vacation to like be here this week to make an investment in our kids, or their moms who got childcare for their infant, not just so they could escape their infant, but so they could be here taking care of the, these other little ones. And uh, and we are just you know we know that from a human perspective we're always just one generation away from losing the gospel um, in our culture, and so we are just so invested uh, in our our kids here. We are grateful for you and we know that it's not always easy to make that investment. I have never cast out a demon, but I did send a kid home from camp once. And so uh, that's got a delayed reaction on that, Joe. It takes you a second. And, uh, but so we are just really, really grateful um, for everybody that, uh, that did that, and, and that's awesome. Well, hey, uh, one other thing, because uh, we got something coming up in our church starting in two weeks that we are extremely excited about. Um, coming up in two weeks, starting the weekend of January 10th and 11th, we are starting a series It's really unlike anything we've ever kind of done at Lake Point before, and the title of the series is At the Movies. Now, before, uh, I always feel like uh, from a leadership perspective, when, uh, when people lose their why, they lose their way. So let me give the why behind At the Movies. Um, what we say at Lake Point is we say, man, we will do anything short of sin to reach people for Christ. And in order to reach people we've never reached before, we've got to do some things we've never done before. And so, for four weeks, um, starting July 10th and 11th, during our at the movie series, we'll be taking movies like popular movies you saw at the theaters, and using those movies to illustrate biblical truths. And you know, I know you're like, "What does that look like?" You just got to be here; you'll see. It's it's, going to be great. And so, for those four weeks, we'll be doing that, and uh, and we're super excited about it. Now, we are like pulling out all the stops. Um, to make those four weeks in July through the first week of August just really, really special. So when you come in at all the campuses, lobbies are going to be decked out. We got Coke and popcorn for you on your way uh, into services. Just you know, just like your are head of the theater, um, we got uh, characters from your kids' favorite movies will be all over our campuses uh, for them to meet. And so, uh, man, it's going to be just really, really cool four weeks for us. Now. Uh, quick disclaimer, because I don't want anybody mad at me, okay? Well, I don't want you to discover this on the spot. Because of some copyright issues that make it difficult for us to broadcast those weeks, at the movies will be in person only. So Lake Point Nation, you guys joining online. We love you. We're going to be doing a best of series for you at Lake Point Church Online. But for everybody else, like, get your butt here. It's going to be great. Uh, move the, uh, am I allowed to say that? I think I'm allowed to say that. Uh, move the vacation, shift the calendar, and uh, it's, it's gonna be awesome. All right, well, all right, here we go. This is the last week of the series that we've just been calling GOAT, which stands for greatest of all time, because we are preaching through the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written, Romans, chapter eight in the Bible. And, uh, and guys, you know, when we plan sermon series, um, you know, if you're, you're the senior pastor, you get to pick which weeks you're going to preach. And I did not want anybody getting to preach Romans 8:31 through 39 besides me. This is special. I wanted it because this is the climactic moment of the entire book of Romans. Some scholars say these verses are the climactic moment of the New Testament. So we were talking about movies. I love climactic moments in movies. These verses They are Clint Eastwood staring down an enemy and saying, go ahead, make my day. These verses are Paulie in Rocky IV saying, hit the one in the middle. These verses are William Wallace standing on the battlefield saying they may take our lives, but they will never take our, that's right, I like you. Whoever just said that out loud, I like you. We could be friends. And then Jana said I needed to include one for the ladies. so. These verses are Mr. Darcy at the end of Pride and Prejudice saying, you have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. There it is, okay, that's it. You're welcome, that's great. Now, here's what we're gonna do. Let me lead into this. Um, I heard a story this week about a guy named Peter Daneka. Some of you guys may have heard that name before. Um, Who was a Russian immigrant that fled to America in 1911 to escape the communist revolution in Russia. And he tells this story about what his parents had to do in order to get him to America. They essentially, they sold everything they had, leveraged all their wealth to buy one boat ticket to get their son over here. He got here, got to Moody Bible Institute, was saved, and God used him as a missionary to bring tons of people to Jesus in both Russia and America. But he tells this story about how he got over here, where his parents leveraged everything to buy this one boat ticket. And his mom packed packed a little, you know, knapsack And she shoved, like, kind of the only food that they could afford in there. It was some stale bread, some hardtack. Sent him on this boat to get over to America. And he talks about how when he got on the boat for this long journey, he said day after day, he began to starve very quickly, ate his way through the food his mom packed. And day after day, he talks about being this little immigrant kid on this boat, looking into the dining hall, watching all these people eat these huge, lush meals, and starving and just wishing he could have even a morsel from their tables. He talks about getting to the point of being, you know very malnourished and wondering you know what was going to happen. And eventually, a sailor on the ship said, "Well, hey son, like hey, if you'll at least help us work, like we'll give you some food to keep you alive." But it was still it was very meager stuff, gruel, that kind of thing. He talks about a moment at the end of his journey when one of the passengers on the boat, read him his ticket that he could not read because it was written in English, and him discovering on literally the last day of the journey that three full meals were included in the purchase of his ticket. That the entire time he had been entitled to those incredible meals, he spent the entire journey watching everyone else eat. This is what he said. I want you to get this little quote. This is preacher gold right here. He said, because I couldn't read what was written on the ticket, I didn't know what I was entitled to. Now, watch this. When you become a Christian and you give your life to Jesus, it's a ticket into eternity with God. But what Romans 8, 31 through 39 does is is Paul going, don't you dare miss out on anything that you're entitled to. Let me make sure you understand everything. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to work our way through these verses just verse by verse by verse. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Uh, and it's, Paul writes them in the form of five rhetorical questions. Five questions that tease out the logic of Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite preachers, old dead British guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he refers to these verses as, quote, logic on fire, Logic on fire. So I'm just going to work my way through these questions uh, one by one, and, uh, and here we go. we got to go move pretty quick, okay? So question number one in verse 31, Paul asks, if God is for us, who could be against us? In other words, God wants you believing the truth, guys, listen to me, that there is way, if you're a Christian, there is way more going for you than anything in this world that is stacked against you. Now, let me acknowledge something just really quick as a a pastor, because this is the part of the message that could be a little emotionally sensitive for, for some. We need to acknowledge that we live in a fallen world where absolutely terrible things do happen, pain, betrayal, abuse, and injustice. But listen, what we're seeing here is that God doesn't want those moments that happen to you to become a victim mentality that defines you. He does not want that for you. Okay, um, my papa, Jerry Howerton, uh, was born into poverty in the Ozark Mountains. And uh, growing up, he lived in a garage with his entire family. And he was born with a medical condition that made his right leg three or four inches shorter than his left leg, and uh, and so uh, he had to use crutches in elementary school, and he couldn't walk or play like any of the other kids. Um, as he continued to grow, uh, he developed diabetes and, and very severe heart disease so that a little later in his life, a doctor assured him that he would never live past 40. Now, my grandfather, Jerry, he could have easily looked at all those things in his life and he, he, he could have uh, seen himself as a victim. He could have taken on this mentality, well, I'll never be able to do what other people do, so you know why even try? Uh, the doctor, said, already, doctor already told me, my limit's 40, so what's the point? Or my family didn't come from much, so why in the world would I think I could go to much? Uh, But my Papa Jerry, he went on to live this incredibly illustrious life that has played itself out benefiting generations in our family. He was married for over 50 years. i He actually toured as a recording artist with a very successful gospel quartet in the 1960s and 70s. He pastored many churches, had three grandchildren, six grandchildren, one of them incredibly good looking. Now, none of them, none of them, none of those things would have happened if he had seen himself as a victim. Uh, True story, in my entire life, even when he was dying, I never once heard my grandfather complain. He refused to see himself as at a disadvantage. Uh, You know, uh, growing up, um, when he was a kid, even though he couldn't run, my grandfather developed this incredible love for the sport of baseball, and he worked and worked and worked to make himself you know, a very effective power hitter. Later on in his life, I remember him reflecting on playing baseball as a kid when he couldn't walk without crutches, and here was his mentality. This is what he said. He said, I figured if I hit it over the fence, it didn't matter, I couldn't run. My grandfather, uh, when a, a doctor told him he'd never live past the age of 40 because, quote, nobody reverses heart disease, Papa's response was, well, somebody's gotta be first. And he lost 100 pounds and lived to the age of 72. Now, really quick, I, just, this a little, I wanna insert this, a little true story. Uh, growing up, my papa was my hero. And so I praised a pastor. And so I, I literally prayed in high school that God would keep him alive long enough for him to do my wedding whenever I found my wife. Because we grew up here and the, the doctor said Papaw would never live past 40. Well, when Jane and I got married, we did, our, uh, we did a beach wedding in Gulf Shores. Papaw did the wedding. At that time, he was mostly paralyzed from the neck down. And so he did the wedding from a wheelchair. When well, the middle of the ceremony, unbeknownst to us... The two back wheels of his wheelchair settled like really deeply into the sand. And in the middle of the nuptials, his center of gravity shifted backwards. The wheelchair fell over and his feet just flew up into the air. Wheelchair, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I didn't know what happened. I thought he died. And so in the middle of the ceremony, remembering my prayer from high school, I was going, Are you kidding me? Are you <laughs> kidding me? You know. But Papa did. He just worked and worked and worked. Until he, like I said, lived until the age of 72. At the end of my papa's life, when he was mostly paralyzed from the neck down, my family organized for a little, little season, 24-hour sort of shifts where a family member would be next to him in his, uh, his uh, physical therapy room 24 hours a day because we didn't want him to choke on something and not be able to do anything about it. And because I was in college, you know, I got like the 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift. And there was one night where I turned the corner to walk into Papa's room in the middle of the night. And I turned the corner and he was telling his physical therapist about Christ and asking how he could pray for her. And uh, my papa's mentality was, well, hey, my arms don't work and my legs don't work, but my mouth still works. So I'll use that to make a difference in somebody else's life. See, my papa, he just absolutely refused to see himself as a victim. In fact, I think it was my papa that coined a family saying that we heard all the time growing up. It's a Howerton family saying, "Howertons are either up or they're getting up. So he refused to see himself as a victim. Now, in our culture, especially in my generation and down, we live in a culture where it seems like everybody wants to be a victim all the time. Everybody's constantly finding a way to be a victim. Guys, let me speak a truth to you that you have to internalize from the Bible. What that person did to you, they can't ruin your life. They can't steal your destiny. That would make them more powerful than God. Guys, listen, everyone is gonna have moments of pain, injustice, and loss, but God doesn't want those moments to become a mentality in your life. He doesn't want you to be somebody who goes, well, you know what, I'm just always gonna struggle. I'll never be happy or whole. Look what was done to me. I can't succeed. Everybody's against me. Guys, listen to me. If God be for you, who can be against you? God doesn't, listen, he doesn't want you to have a victim mentality. He wants you to have a victor mentality. He wants you thinking about this world like this. He wants you going, hey, listen, it may be hard right now, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yep, they might be against me, but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Man, what that person did to me, it did leave me with scars. But I am not defined by my scars. I'm defined by the ones on his nail-scarred hands. I am not powerless. I am not unable because the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in me. And I am more than a conqueror in him. God does not want you having a victim mentality. He wants you to have a victor mentality because, guys, if you're a Christian, there is way more going for you than there is against you, which leads me to question number two, verse 32. Paul asked the question, by the way, this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Paul asked the question, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The logic of this verse is, what in the world could you possibly fear? Because if he has given you the larger, can't you be sure that he'll supply the smaller (laughs) That's the logic. Here's the analogy. Let me give you this little analogy and kind of tease it out. If I were to be at whatever campus you're at right now, if I were to be in the lobby, and you were to find me in the lobby afterwards, and you were to ask me for $10 million, you'd be asking the wrong guy, but if you were to ask me, you would ask me for $10 million. And one, I miraculously had it, and two, I loved you so much that I gladly gave you $10 million in the lobby. Well, months later, if you had a need for a tic-tac, would you be afraid to ask me for a tic-tac thinking I might not give it to you? Of course not. If I'm willing to give you $10 million, a tic-tac is nothing. That's what this verse means when it says, guys, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given us the larger, which means he'll definitely give give us a smaller. Now, that should change some things, about how you think about what's happening in this world. You know, growing up, uh, my brother and I, we started collecting baseball cards, like when we were, baseball and basketball cards when we were really young. And, you know, it was like our favorite pastime. We'd buy the packs and we'd get home. And, and, you know, my generation, you may remember, we'd buy those little Beckett, you know, the price guides, and we'd get home, we'd rip open the packs, and then we'd look down through the, the little Beckett price guide to see how much each card was worth. And we oh, that card's worth 75 cents. Hey, this one's worth $1.25, that kind of thing. And then we love going to our dad and telling, hey, dad, this card, we, we, this card's worth $5, that kind of thing. Well, my dad, bit of a Debbie Downer, my dad would say the same thing over and over again. When we were growing up. Dad would say, guys, something is, he'd say, it's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Over. That's like gospel according to eBay. That's what that is. It's worth was somebody's willing to pay. You got that thing that you feel is priceless in your house. You put it on eBay. Somebody Highest bid's $4. Guess what it's worth? $4. It's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Now listen. Do you know the price that God was willing to pay for you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And when you understand that, it starts to shift how you view what's happening to you in your life. Uh, In college, I had a a friend named Matthew. Uh, We went to a couple concerts together, and Matthew had this story that uh, growing up, his family had a lake house in Tennessee, and when he was like really, really, really small, they'd go there and they'd spend weekends and parts of the summer at their lake house. And there was an old, frail, just sort of, you know, joyful man that lived next door to them, the lake, lake house next to him. They called him Uncle Johnny. And Uncle Johnny, as he described, would, would kind of come out in the lawn when he'd see the kids there and he'd throw a ball just to kind of have a little game with the kids and play around every now and then. He'd get out his old, beaten-up guitar and, and croak out a few songs that were kind of humorous to make all the kids laugh. But before Uncle Johnny died, or he, he gifted the family with that old, beat-up guitar, And Matthew's dad kept that guitar in their living room. Yeah, their living room where all the kids would play. They'd throw baseballs. They'd wrestle around on the ground right right around that guitar. Well, Matthew didn't think anything about that guitar until after he kind of grew out of his toddler years and gained awareness in the world, he had two extremely profound revelations. One, he came to realize that Uncle Johnny was Johnny Cash, and that that guitar was a concert-used guitar from one of his last tours. Now, he says, man, it's a miracle we didn't destroy that thing. <laughs> you know, we wrestled around in that living room. We threw baseball. We were one errant throw away from destroying something that was priceless. Had we known the price that someone would have been willing to pay for that thing, we would have treated it differently Now, guys, think about this. God paid the price of Jesus to redeem you, and that that should change how you think about what God is doing with you in the midst of your life. Guys, why in the world would you think that God would supply the blood of his own son and then not supply what you need to do his purpose and calling in your life? Why in the world would you think that he would die to rescue you from sin but then not help you in your marriage? Why would you think that he would supply the Holy Spirit but withhold from you wisdom in your parenting and relationships? Let me, let me just, I want this to really sink into your heart. Not everybody is going through the same thing, but everybody everywhere is going through something. So right now, in your seat, I want you to get fix a need that you have in your life right now in your mind. It might be a parenting need, a relational need, a financial need, might, might be so, something else. Fix a need that you have in your mind right now? Now think about this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What in the world could we fear? If God supplied the larger, he'll definitely supply the smaller. Which leads us to questions three and four. Paul asks this question. He says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? This is verse 33 and on. Who could bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, this interceding for us. So here's what this passage is saying. I just want to speak to you in a really straightforward way. I just, the more, I I just more and more just feel the need to speak to you in a really straightforward way, okay? You're going to die. You're going to die. And Jesus is going to judge every single person everywhere. Guys, judgment day is coming, and if you have not yet made a decision about your eternity or pondered what you need to do with Christ, let me just gently say to you, only a fool goes through life unprepared for what's inevitable. Judgment day is coming. But what this verse says is that if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ through faith, the one who will judge you is the same one who died for you. So how in the world could you carry guilt anymore in this life? Uh, this seems to be a, there just seems to be a lot of personal stories. So indulge me one more. Um, in high school, I, I went to high school before everybody bought their kids cars as soon as they turned sixteen, and so uh, you know. In high, oh, thank you, thank you. All right. And so I saved up, you know, my, my pennies, and, and the car I bought was a, it was a two thousand Kia Sofia. It might have been a 99, 99 or 2000 Kia Sophia. Uh, It was the cheapest, I bought it used, and it was the cheapest car in American retail the year it was sold. Um, I, I have purchased hot dogs at ball games wrapped in tinfoil that were safer than me in that car. Let me just say that. And, uh, which was illustrated by what happened to me about a year after I got that car. A year after I got the car, uh, I was driving about 15 or 20 miles an hour down the road fiddling with my radio, which this is descriptive, not prescriptive, by the way. Wasn't paying attention to the road, and I hit the back of a conversion van. Again, I could not have been going more than 15 or 20 miles an hour. Now, two things happened. One, my car was totaled, immediately totaled, like immediately. Uh, And then the steel bumper of that conversion van sustained a small dent. That's all that happened. Uh, A fun fact, as soon as the driver of the conversion van got out of the car, the first thing he said to me was, I thought somebody hit me. So he said, my car was totaled. He said, I thought somebody hit me. Now, the logic of this verse is this if Jesus was judged for your sin in your place, and he's the one who will ultimately judge you, guilt should bounce off you like a Kia from a bumper. That's what, you, that's what this is saying. Okay, now let me explain kind of the logic of this. Um, you got it, you simply, when you're reading your Bible, start paying attention for how often the Bible uses legal language. Like, th- think about this verse it says, Who will bring any charge? Again, legal language, charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. That's a legal term for an acquittal, justifies. That means when God looks at you, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Actually, it's even better than that. It means when God looks at you, it's just as if you've, you've always obeyed. Justifies. It says, who is to condemn? Again, a legal term, a legal term, condemnation. It says that Jesus is the one that's, quote, at the right hand of God. That's a position in a courtroom next to a judge. It says Jesus is the one who, quote, intercedes for us. Because that's what a defense attorney does for a defendant whenever they say, Your Honor, may I approach the bench? In legal terminology, they're interceding for the defendant. And then, let me, let me connect some dots. And then in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible uses a word it doesn't use anywhere else to describe what the devil does in your life. It calls him, quote, in English, the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of the brothers and sisters, now, when it, you, the English word accuse, accuser, that comes from the Greek word. It's the same word that means prosecuting attorney. What the Bible is trying to get you to understand is it's as if there's a courtroom in heaven. You're the defendant. The devil is a prosecuting attorney. Jesus is the defense attorney. God is the judge. And what the devil's always, watch this, what Satan is always trying to do in your life, here's his strategy He's trying to get you to make your issue your identity. Whatever your issue is, you may struggle with you know, an anger issue, pornography struggle, selfishness, greed, whatever it is. He wants you to make your issue your identity so that you begin to believe that God feels about you what he feels about your issue. Like, for instance, you know that God disapproves of maybe the anger issue or the pornography issue, the selfishness, the greed that you struggle with, The devil wants you to believe that that issue is your identity so that you feel like God is disapproving of you in the same way that he disapproves of your identity, and he pleads that case every single day internally in your conscience and externally in heaven, trying to convince the courtroom of your soul you're your issue. You're your issue. That's all you are. Now, what Romans 8 says, the problem is He's pleading the case for your condemnation to a judge that died for your justification. In other words, the same person who will judge me bears in his body the proof of my justification. So for him to condemn me, he would have to deny the marks in his own body. Oh, what Now listen, awareness of that reality, it should free us forever from feelings of guilt, shame, and inferiority. Now, as a pastor, let me just acknowledge really quick, I am not saying that just memorizing a few verses just magically makes feelings of guilt, shame, and inferiority go away. Trauma, the humans are more complex than that. Trauma has a way of mapping itself onto our soul, our body, our emotional pathways. There is a process to that payoff. But here's what I am saying. I am saying that the core of overcoming those feelings is the realization that you have a heavenly father who approves of you that he thought you were worth saving, that you are justified in his sight, and he has declared a purpose over you greater than what anybody else thinks or ever says about you. If this is true, how in the world could we bear guilt anymore? In fact, we've said it like this before at Lake Point. If you've been around a while, you've heard this before, I don't care. I just want to say it over and over and over again because he is saying the opposite of it over and over and over again as your accuser in your conscience. What this means is that your issue is not your identity. You are not your issue. Guys, what that means is that you are not your addiction. I don't care how many times you've stood up in an AA meeting and said, hi, my name is John and I'm I'm an alcoholic. Now listen, you may have struggled with alcoholism, but your deepest identity is not that you are an alcoholic, you are a child of the living God. Guys, you are not your sin. It doesn't matter how bad what you did was and it doesn't matter how long you did it. It doesn't matter how deep the pain was, how willingly you did it for as long as you did it. You are not your sin. You are not your orientation. And I know, especially in this culture right now, you got a million people in your ear telling you what you should and should not do with that part of your life, but you are not your orientation. You are not your affair. You are not your abortion. You are not your divorce. And you may look at us and say, yeah, but that's the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. No, it isn't. Jesus dying on the cross for you is the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. That is what (laughs) defines you and nothing else. And so we know that if these things are true, how in the world can we carry guilt anymore, which leads us to Question five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, think about these words. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when I first read this passage and it talks about us being, quote, more than conquerors, I was like, well, what the heck does that mean? I don't know what that means. How can you be more than a conqueror? But th- think about this analogy. If two armies are fighting each other on a battlefield and they fight to the death, anybody that just survives the battle, no matter how bad it, it jacked you up, if you just survive the battle, you're a conqueror, okay? When this passage says that in Christ we are more than conquerors, what it means is that in the redeeming hands of God, not only will you, if you are a Christian, survive every battle, just track with me, it means that every battle you ever face, God will transform and repurpose as an agent of his own purpose in your life to make you better, to make you better. You will be more than a conqueror. From the perspective of eternity, one day, as much as we cannot understand this right now in the painful now, one day from the perspective of eternity, we will look back, and what God did through that situation, redeeming it, will cause us to worship him and give thanks for his goodness. Now, that's hard to understand, let me give an example of this. So um, I was saved, God saved me when I was, I think I was a sophomore in high school, And uh, called me to ministry really shortly after that. And uh, when he did that, you know, I I didn't know how to preach. I was listening to my home church pastor, but I wanted to listen to more people. So um, I didn't know who else to listen to. This is pre-podcast. And so, like, I just turned on TBN and started listening to TV preachers. Bad idea. And that's what I did. And there was a guy when I was in high school that was on TV. Now, I'm going to show his picture in a second. And it looks a, a little goofy, but there's a backstory here. Um, The guy's name was David Ring. This guy's name was David Ring, okay? Now, just track. David Ring, his story is um, he was born extremely prematurely, and as a premature infant, he was stillborn. He was born dead. Uh, He was dead for the first 18, think about this, 18 minutes of his life. 18 minutes, no heartbeat, 18 minutes, no oxygen, 18 minutes, no blood flow. And because of the severe brain damage that he received from 18 minutes with no oxygen, uh, he developed, he had cerebral palsy and some other severe you know, issues in his life. Um, so that obviously created like a hard childhood. Uh, but he was really, really close to his family. Well, his dad died when he was 11 years old. And then it was just he and his mom. She was his lifeline. And his mom died when he was 14 years old just left him like totally alone in the world. And his only conclusion he could reach is that God must hate him. He made him that way and took away everybody they loved dear. And so David Ring, when he was in high school, he, he tried to take his own life. Until at like a youth event, he heard somebody preach about Jesus, and preach these things. And he had this powerful experience of the love of God in his life And he was saved, and you know, the spirit came to dwell inside of him. And what he said was that after that, he said, I didn't want to die anymore because now I had something worth living for. And of everything that God could have done with David Ring, he made the guy with cerebral palsy and a severe speech impediment a preacher of Jesus. David Ring went on to uh, preach in more than 6,000 churches in dozens of countries and millions of people heard the gospel through the mouth of David Ring. And if you ever heard a David Ring sermon, he ends almost every sermon the same way. He says, we throw away broken things, but God uses broken things. My name is David Ring and I have cerebral palsy. What's your excuse? Now, I want you to think about this. His ministry was not so powerful in spite of his cerebral palsy. The light beamed through all the broken places. His ministry was powerful in God's redemptive hands because of his cerebral palsy. And he was more than a conqueror through those issues in his life. Now what you need to know is that's true for you. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither divorce, nor bad marriage, nor abuse, nor false accusations, nor betrayal, nor cerebral palsy, nor cancer, nor sin, nor miscarriage, nor struggle, will be able to separate you, if you're a Christian, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, in all those things you will be more than conquerors through him who loves you. Now you may hear that, you may go, no, 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 wait a second, Josh. Like, I, I, not everything. God doesn't repurpose everything for good thing. He doesn't do that. I've seen some things end real badly. Not everything ends great. What about death? Some things, Josh, just end. Here's how I want to land the plane of this message. When I was in seminary, somebody said that the essential job of a pastor is to prepare people to die. So right now, let me remind us all that there is a battle every single one of us will face. Someday... Every single person, you're, you're gonna be on your deathbed and you gotta understand this, God is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. Someday, everyone within the hearing of my voice and the person from whom this voice is coming will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you know why it says shadow? The Bible is alluding to the fact that for a person of faith, you will never taste death but only its shadow because the minute you close your eyes and breathe your last breath, you will step into an eternity that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What that means is that evil, even in the last battle you ever face, the battle of death, death itself will actually usher you into the most glorious thing you ever experience. And in that moment, actually, especially in that moment, you will be more than a conqueror of the last enemy to be defeated by Jesus, death itself, as you step into his loving arms forever. Lake Point Church, if you believe that, will you say amen and put your hands together? Because that, that, my friends, that, my friends, is logic on fire. Now, I wanna pray that for you right now, that that would sink in. So would you at all of our campuses bow your heads, close your eyes, and Father, thank you so much for going to the cross and sealing these precious and very great promises with the blood of your own son. Thank you so much that the one who will judge us is the one who died for us. And so in order to judge us guilty, he would have to deny the marks he bears in his own body. And so Jesus, we worship you. Father, I pray for all of our people that your spirit would, like your word says, pour out the love of God deeply into our souls. God, I pray that right now for anybody that does not know you, that has not placed their faith in Christ, God, would you please, because you love them, just gently speak to them right now like, hey, those promises aren't yours yet, but they can be today. And would you please welcome and usher them home today as they give their, themselves to you by faith today. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That day, today would be the day of redemption. That they would call on the Lord while he's near. And so, Father, please let us go forward in a great confidence knowing that these things are true for us. We love you. We pray those things in the crucified, risen name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit Digital.